one of the things that I said um, when I was candidating here at this church was that I believed that a senior pastor is essentially like your ace pitcher on a pitching staff, and that if you pitch him 52 weeks a year, you'll burn out his shoulder in a couple of years, and then you'll just hear the same sermon again and again, preached from a different passage. There was a study done some time ago that pastors that preached more than about 42 weeks a year essentially preached the same eight sermons over and over and over and over again because they don't have any time to read anything new and really generate any new creativity and really hear from the passage that they're facing so that each sermon really is a new re-speaking of God's word. So because of that, when I said here, I said that I wanted to preach between 38 and 42 messages a year. That requires then that you hospitably listen to between 10 and 12 guest speakers. Okay? Someday we may have an associate pastor, and it may just be two over the course, you know, for most of those, but I think it's good for us anyway. You know, I mean, we're going to hear from an engineer this morning. That's just going to be different, okay? <laughs> so um, I invited my brother, uh, Stanford Gibson, um, to preach this morning. He um, has master's in civil engineering from UW and um, a master's in arts and theology from Wheaton College. He's got a PhD from UC Davis. He works in one of the coding think tanks in hydrology and sedimentation, which, which meant while, while we were all singing, he was wondering why that waterfall could put that much water on the beach and not create a rivulet. <laughs> To the water, you know. What about the sedimentation? So, um, uh, Stan also preaches fairly regularly at a college ministry at University of California, Davis, um, and so I get to preview all his sermons, and so we picked one for him to do for us. Um, he's, the, he's the kind of person that it's, it's common when he's, um, when he's, when I'm listening to him preach, uh, I often think what, the, the old line from Monty Python, I wish I had said that. So, um, yeah, so Stan's going to speak to us about uh, Philip. And let me just say that um, John and I have already failed for this service to go to the, the length that I and the elders agreed on it would go. Okay, so when Stan goes over time, it's not his fault. Um, it's our fault, and I think that we all wanted the extra five minutes we got from our missionaries, too. I was very encouraged to hear about the work of God in, 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 in Pakistan. So, speaking of a Stan, here's one. Go for it. <laughs> so, uh, you should know that uh, your pastor has only the highest standards for guest speakers. Because uh, last night I asked him, so do you, do you have any advice, anything that I should keep in mind? And he said, you should wear pants. So, <laughs> so there you go. I did. Um. <clears throat> On January 17th, in 1964, a new film premiered in Manhattan. The next day, the Washington Post reported that nine people showed up, and two of them left in the first hour. Now, the remarkable thing about this story is that the other seven didn't. The movie, was, the movie was Sleep, and it was Andy Warhol's first film. The movie was six hours long, and it consisted entirely of footage of a man sleeping. When they asked Warhol, why would you do that? Here's what he said. 
He said, I could never finally figure out if more things happened in the 60s because there was more awake time for them to happen in since people were on amphetamine or if people started taking amphetamine because there were so many things that needed to, there were so many things that they needed to have more awake time to do them in. Seeing everyone so up all the time made me think that sleep was becoming pretty obsolete. So I decided I'd better quickly do a movie about a person sleeping. It makes a certain kind of sense, right? Oh, there's people up there. Look at that. Um, here's the thing. Sleep was a terrible film by almost any measure because it was a gimmick. It was a gimmick. Storytellers are trained to leave stuff like that out. If you want to tell a good story, you leave out the stuff that we all do, like sleep and bathroom time, right? Take, for example, the recent film, 500 Days of Summer. In 500 Days of Summer, it follows the, um, the relationship of a couple as they kind of grow together and grow apart over the course of 500 days. This movie was 95 minutes long, which means in order to tell this story, the storytellers had to leave out approximately 719,905 minutes. Good storytelling is by its very nature selective, right? Good storytelling is by its very nature selective. And this, on the whole, is good and helpful. No one is clamoring for more sleep and bathroom time in movies, except for maybe odd people in disturbing corners of the internet. Um, but you have to understand the selective nature of storytelling if you're going to be able to read the narrative portions of your Bible, if you're going to be able to get out what you need to get out of those narrative portions of your scripture. Take, for example, the book of Acts. The book of Acts, which is short for Acts of the Apostles, it's the fifth book of your New Testament. It's after the four books that are called the Gospels, which tell the story of Jesus. And the book of Acts is a full-on bona fide sequel. It tells what happens next, what happened after Easter. And it tells the story of the 30 years that happened after Jesus came, died, and raised. It's a great story. It's a great story. There's adventures, there's miracles, there's demons, there's, there's shipwrecks. There is, I kid you not, a snake attack. It's a great story. I don't know about you, though. Sometimes, when I read these inspiring stories of the Bible, these great adventures of the Bible, I don't end up inspired. I end up deflated. When we think of the book of Acts, we remember the miracle of the pool, Paul's great conversion, Peter's great sermon, the dramatic moments. And then we turn to our relatively normal lives, and it can leave us feeling diminished, disappointed in ourselves, and underwhelmed by the acts of God in our generation. There appears to be an empirical disconnect between the dynamic works of God in the scripture and the relative monotony of our everyday lives.
So Nick mentioned that I, I preach at, I regularly preach at a college ministry on the University of California, Davis. And at the end of last year, we did a, a teaching series that we called the Big Question Series. And the idea was that we surveyed a bunch of students and we asked them, what are your biggest objections to Christianity? What's the biggest reason that you don't accept the Christian story? And before we even did this survey, we thought about the speakers we were going to line up on things like pluralism and the conflict between science and faith and, uh, and the problem of evil. You know, the big questions usually rise to the top, right? But we were shocked that none of those was the number one question. The number one objection to the faith, the number one big question, was a question that we came to call uninspiring Christianity. Uninspiring Christianity. They wanted to know, where is the reckless adventure? Where are the miracles? Where is the dramatic divine intervention? And maybe you've wondered that. I know I have. This morning, we're going to take a look at a story that I think helps provide us resources for that great paradox. Because here's the thing about stories. Stories are more interesting than everyday life. That's why we tell them. Stories are more interesting than everyday life. Even the true ones even the inspired ones. Think about the book of Acts with me for a minute. The book of Acts took 30 years to happen. And you can sit down and read it in under two hours. Now that's a good thing, because on the whole, let's face it, the Bible, it's a relatively longish book, and it has a fair number of nap-inducing sections as it is. But the selective nature of the storytelling of the Bible can also be problematic. We can be left with the idea that normative Christianity is a string of miracles, cataclysmic breakthroughs, and harrowing adventures. And that if our life doesn't somehow live up to that, we've somehow missed the real thing. What the biblical narrative necessarily omits is the tedium. What the biblical narrative necessarily omits is the boredom. So you have to do what I call reading the white space of the text. You have to read the white space of the text. You have to read the text with your eyes open for the uneventful months that passed as Paul and his companions walked from Ephesus to Corinth. You have to read the Bible with your eyes wide open for the long hours that passed as Paul and his companions chased after elusive sleep, tossing back and forth on a wet, cold ship deck. And that's on the nights they had good weather. You have to read the text with your eyes wide open for the interminable days that Paul, like Joseph and Daniel before him, spent in jail. But none of this should surprise us. Because Paul, who incidentally, you know, we get the sense when we're reading the book of Acts that Paul, that Paul becomes a Christian and then all of a sudden starts doing great things. Paul disappears from the book of Acts for seven years. He goes back to Tarsus for seven years and we hear nothing from him until Barnabas and goes gets him. But that shouldn't surprise us because God, God, Paul serves a God 
who sent Moses into the desert to be a shepherd for 40 years. Now there's the book of the Bible I'd like to read. Moses the Shepherd Years. It would read like a really bad blog. Day 4,565. Got up this morning, herded the sheep. Day 6,743. Got us this morning, herded me some sheep. Day 10,748. Got up this morning, herded me some sheep. Started talking to Yahweh. That's probably how that thing went down. But none of this should surprise us, because both of them serve a God who, when he decided to invade reality, our reality, when he decided to take on flesh, he spent 90% of his time here in a blue-collar trade. You see, for all of the Bible's selective storytelling, reading it carefully reveals that the strength of the church is not in a few all-stars doing dramatic things. The strength of the church is in many quiet individuals making unnoticed contributions, undocumented sacrifices, and understated adventures. And so this morning, I just want to retell one of these stories, but I want to retell it with a surprising twist ending. I know I'm not, you're not supposed to be able to do that with the Bible, right? Well, this, this, okay, anyway. Um, I promise I'm not making this up. And then I just want to mind this um, quickly for three, for three implications that have been extremely profitable in my own relatively normal life. Remember, I'm an engineer. That's about as boring as it gets, right? All right. And so I've, I've titled today's talk, Philip's Second Adventure. Philip's Second Adventure. As far as I'm concerned, Philip is the most interesting human character in the book of Acts. But it doesn't seem like his story should count as one of the underrated stories of the Bible because he basically gets a whole chapter to himself. I mean, most of chapter 8 is about Philip. And that first adventure, that's quite an adventure. The story Nick read for us this morning. Philip was a multicultural pioneer. He was young, he was adventurous, he was brash, he was spiritually sensitive, and he was slightly impetuous. When God told him to share the gospel, where was the first place he went? Samaria, to the very people he was raised to hate the most. And then, for an encore, he turns around and baptizes an African man. Two full chapters before a man named Peter even realizes that the gospel is for more than the Jews. He lived exciting months on the road, daily in the power of God. And then, like so many people in the book of Acts, he simply disappears from the text. And I always thought, this is one of the great mysteries of the Bible. What happened to Philip? This guy was awesome! And so I made up this story, right? And so uh, the last we hear of Philip is in Acts 8, chapter 40. Or Acts chapter 8, verse 40. It says, Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching in the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. 
Okay, so there's a map of what Philip was doing. And I used to think, well, probably what happened is he just kept going north, right? I mean, he was going from Azatoth to Caesarea, and he just kept going north. And pretty soon he got out of range of where the stories could have gotten back to Luke in time for press, right? And, uh, and you know, the Arabian Peninsula couldn't hold this guy. And uh, sooner or later, he ended up in a town that didn't like what he had to say. And he got waxed, right? Martyred. Now, that makes a great story. That's a great story. But that's not what happened. We meet Philip one more time, 20 years after his adventure. Paul, who's the main character of the second half of the book of Acts, is traveling with Luke, the author, and uh, they're on their way to Jerusalem, and they stop in Caesarea. And Luke drops one of the most interesting footnotes in all literary history on us in Acts 21, verses 8 and 9. Here's what he says. Oh, all right, here he's, here he's go. Here's his travel. <clears throat> Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, Philip uses the phrase, one of the seven, to let us know without a shadow of a doubt that this is the same Philip from chapter 8. And there's a few interesting things about this. First of all, he's in Caesarea, which is what? That's exactly where we left him 20 years ago. And he has four unmarried daughters. But here's the interesting thing. The Greek word for unmarried has the connotation of unmarried but of marriageable age. So think about this with me for a minute. In order for his youngest daughter to be of marriageable age, say 15 or 16 in this culture, his oldest daughter would have to be 19 years old. Which leads F.F. Bruce to say, and I'm paraphrasing here because he's British and I'm a little stuffy. <laughs> Do the math. Philip met a girl. 20 years earlier, Philip hit Caesarea. He met a girl. He fell in love. They started making babies. And he's been there ever since. Does that shock you? Does that seem like a strange end for the Philip story? It shocked me. But Acts 21.9 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Because in these seven words, Luke tells us the story of Philip's second adventure as a daddy. And so, what's the point? You know, what does it matter that we meet Philip 20 years later? Why does Luke even include this footnote? There were lots of towns they passed through that he didn't even mention. Well, there are at least three ways that I have profited from this passage in my own relatively normal Christian journey. And so quickly, let me, just, let me just bring you through these. Three implications of Philip's second adventure. First, 
<clears throat> Parenthood is one of God's most important assignments. Parenthood is one of God's most important assignments. At the end of chapter 8, after Philip's first adventure, you could argue that Philip is God's most promising asset. I want you to think about the story at this point. Stephen has just been stoned. Peter is struggling with issues of racism. He's still not sure that the gospel is for everyone. And Paul not only isn't a Christian yet, but he's killing them. Acts chapter 8 is actually an extremely dark portion of the period of, of the story of Acts. Philip is a lone shining light in that portion. If this was the CIA, if the early church was the CIA, Philip would be the top operative. And he would be assigned after Caesarea to whatever the most strategic thing would be next. And so what does God do with him? When God reassigns his top asset to his most strategic position in his fledgling church, he reassigns him as a daddy. Philip spent most of that 20 years that elapsed between his brief adventure in hosting Paul, wiping up spit up, changing diapers, getting up and going to his job, serving faithfully in his local church, being a light in his neighborhood, and supporting the global mission of the church. He is right there for Paul. Now, in case some of you don't have kids yet, or maybe it's been a while, let me, let me, let me remind you a little bit of how you spend your time when you have kids. <laughs> This is my youngest daughter, Alethea. Now, my oldest daughter, Karis, she's her mommy's child. Um, she looks like her mommy. She acts like her mommy. Um, she's artistic and, and intuitive. And, uh, you know, we've, we've had her for a couple years, and my brother noticed this, and he joked, you know, you guys do know that cloning is illegal, right? I mean, Alethea is her daddy's girl. She's an engineer. She has to figure everything out. And so uh, a few months ago, Amanda, my wife, gave her her first peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And instead of just eating the thing like a, like a normal kid, she was immediately intrigued by its modular nature. <laughs> and so she took it apart. And behold, there's heterogeneous yumminess inside. But now she has a problem. Because you see, a one-year-old needs two hands to eat anything. And she has something in each hand. And so to solve this problem, she decided to store the peanut butter side on her chest. <laughs> and then she proceeded to eat the delicious jelly. All I'm trying to say here is that Philip spent the years that followed that brief Mediterranean adventure in a very different way. But here's what I love about the text. We don't get the slightest hint from Luke that Philip has sold out. In fact, he esteems Philip, not only by including this in the passage, but listen to the language. Philip the evangelist, one of the seven, 
These are good, strong years for Philip. These are years Philip can be proud of. These are years you could be proud of. God's dramatic encore for Philip was to stay put for 20 years and be a daddy. Implication number two. The currency of Christian maturity is faithfulness, not adventure. The currency of Christian maturity is faithfulness, not adventure. You see, the one thing that is totally unacceptable in our culture is boredom. It's the one thing that's totally unacceptable. And you see, I wasted a lot of guilt in my life that I wasn't Paul. I read Acts a bunch of times and felt a lot of guilt that I wasn't Paul. But that's careless reading of the scripture. Because the kingdom of God is not built on a bunch of Pauls. I mean, Nick is nice, but we only need a couple of them. (laughs) Trust me. (laughs) The kingdom of God is built on a few Pauls and a lot of Phillips. It's the faithfulness of a hundred thousand small things that builds the kingdom over decades rather than the adventure of two or three exciting moments. The currency of Christian maturity is faithfulness, not adventure. And then finally, an appetite for adventure can be as idolatrous as materialism. An appetite for adventure can be as idolatrous as materialism. So pretty much everyone agrees that last year was not a good year for movies. When the Academy Awards rolled around, the overwhelming consensus was, we don't care who gets it as long as it's not Avatar, right? I mean... Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Glorified (laughs) virtually. And so the Academy Award went to a, to a movie called Hurt Locker, which follows the adventures of a, uh, of a platoon in Iraq that spends their time defusing roadside bombs. <clears throat> At the end of the film, one of these soldiers comes home. After the end of his tour for, a, for an extended homestay, and there's this, there's this really quiet scene where he's putting his infant son to bed. And he says this. And I think he says it more to himself than to his son. He says, his son's playing with his jack-in-the-box. And he says, you love playing with that. You love playing with all your stuffed animals. You love your mommy, your daddy. You love your pajamas. You love everything, don't you? Yeah. But you know what, buddy? As you get older, some of the things you love might not seem so special anymore. The older you get, the fewer things you really love. And by the time you get to my age, maybe it's only one or two things. With me, I think it's only one. And you get the sense that this is actually a really sweet, touching scene 
because you feel bad for the mommy, but you feel like the guy's saying, at least the guy has one thing in his life that he, that, that's meaningful, that he loves. He loves his son. Which is why the next scene is so heartbreaking. Because he gets on a plane and goes back. His son wasn't his one thing. His one thing was the feelings of adventure and significance he got from his job. He needed to be needed. He needed to be important. His appetite for adventure rendered rendered him useless to the people who needed to count on him. Which is why the movie starts with the quote, war is a drug. And that's all the Bible means when it talks about idolatry. Idolatry is your drug. It's the one thing you can't live without. And this is what these great commandments mean. You know, here's a paraphrase of the great commandments. I am Yahweh your God. You can have no other drugs. For some of us, when we decided to follow Jesus, we bravely said that we would accept any hardship from him. Any hardship, that is, except boredom. We would accept any trial. Any trial, that is, except tedium. We'll serve Jesus as long as it's the great adventure that the youth pastor promised. But that's idolatry, and that'll kill you. The main message of the First Testament is that you cannot define your identity by anything besides God alone. And there's this thing that happens. It's happened in every recent generation where the younger generation looks at the older generation and rejects their materialism and then turns around and tries to define our existence by adventure and experience. But you see, that's just a different kind of idolatry. And so if we get our significance from adventure and experience, then when God calls us, like he calls most of us, to the relatively normal normal existence of settling down, having kids, being part of a local church, and serving our neighborhood, it chafes us. Because we defined our personality by the experiences and in the adventures we were going to have. Okay, so let me wrap up. What's the point of all this? Well, the point isn't to bear down and try harder to love your kids, right? I mean, the point isn't to trade in the, the feelings of significance that you used to get from experiences and adventure and get them instead for your, from your kids. Children can be particularly devastating idols. If you look to your children for feelings of significance, those little monsters will crush you. (laughs) They're not dying for your sins. They're not even going to say thank you for a cookie. (laughs) The point of Philip's second adventure is that if you worship Jesus and center your identity on him. He could call you to danger or tedium. And you'll say, 
Yes, please. More. The point of Philip's second adventure was that Philip was so enamored with the glory of God. He was so transformed by looking into the face of Jesus that the mechanics of his service were incidental. All that mattered was that he got to serve. The point of Philip's second adventure is not to try harder to be content. It's to worship Jesus. The point is to allow your deepest affections to be so captivated by his love, so entranced by his beauty and his severity, that your greatest desire is to do whatever it takes to amplify his glory and extend his influence. Regardless of whether that's danger or tedium. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this fun little footnote in the middle of Acts. It's just the sort of thing that you would do if this was your book. I thank you for this story of a second adventure, which looks a lot more like my life than his first one. But I pray that for those of us in here who are Phillips, that we would be so enraptured by your goodness, by your beauty, by your holiness, that we would accept whatever comes from your hand, even if that's getting up and going to work tomorrow morning, spending long hours playing trucks with kids, serving our church, giving sacrificially, and being households of kindness and justice in our neighborhoods.